Hey everyone, Jeremy L. Jones here, author of Ruins of Empire. So we have a little problem here at Ruins of Empire HQ. It seems producer Sean has come down with a case of acute separation anxiety. Every week when we are done recording, he slides off his chair and weeps quietly under the table. Now, this could be because listening to me reading for hours on end has finally driven him mad, but I like to think it's because that every chapter we read brings us a little closer to the end. But you can prolong that by leaving a review on iTunes or Stitcher or wherever you get your podcast. It helps people find this and keeps me writing books so that Sean never has to leave. Ever. You are listening to Ruins of Empire, Templum Veneris, book two of the Ruins of Empire Project, a serial podcast novel by Jeremy L. Jones, read by the author. Chapter 11 After the assassination attempt, Diana Adriana disappeared from public view for several months. When she returned, it was to issue the following proclamation. The natural beauty and vast resources of Brazil, the talent and labor of its people, and the wealth of its culture have been, up to this point, stolen and sold to the highest bidder, the proceeds of which benefit a select few in faraway places. That changes today. The international corporations are no longer welcome here, The people and the resources of Brazil will no longer be exploited by the rest of the world. From the Fall, The Decline and Failure of 21st Century Civilization by Martin Raff Althea returned to the Salah and snuck inside. The drinking hall was silent, except for the clatter of a culto, cleaning up the remains of food and drink, and the snores of a few Cytherian warriors sleeping off the excess on the floor. She crept through the wreckage, making sure not to step on anything still sleeping, and found her way back to her room, where she sat down hard on the edge of the bed. When they first showed her inside, the queen's assistants had closed the curtains and lit a small fire in the square pit in the center. It was now burned all the way down to glowing coals and a few small flames. Althea laid on her side and watched the fire smoldering in the pit. She was exhausted, but sleep felt like an impossibility. For one, the sun was still out, and light streamed around the curtain and through a hole in the ceiling where the smoke escaped. It was dim, but it was enough. The mattress felt like someone made it by killing a sheep that had lived a terribly unpleasant life, skinned it, and shoved it full of sticks. On top of all that, Some sociopath had taken the time to decorate every wall with a mural depicting the most savage acts of brutality imaginable. The whole thing was a running motif involving shirtless men, severed heads, and the color red. The way the firelight flickered in the dim light gave the art an uneasy sense of movement, as if the painting may come to life at any moment and Althea would find herself sleeping in the middle of a pitched battle. She sighed, focusing on the flicker of firelight over the soft red glow of the coals, and let her mind wander. She could still hear the terror in the pregnant woman's voice, could still see the fear in her face. Something terrible was happening, and Althea knew it. She lay back on the bed. Maybe she was overreacting. After all, it was a civilization and a culture they knew little to nothing about. That was why they were here, after all, to study and document the way people outside the hegemonic terrestrial cultures might organize and rule themselves. They might do some things that were morally questionable to her, but, like Vago said, maybe it was what they needed to survive out here. Vago's words echoed in her head again. You could always ask your brother what people are willing to do to survive. 
Feeling her anger rise again, she sat up and ran her hands through her dark red hair. There was no need to bring her brother into this. It was a cheap shot. Not that Vega was wrong. Althea flopped back on the bed, breathing hard and fighting back tears. Not that she was afraid of someone seeing her cry in this place, but she'd shed enough tears for her brother. Yes, Vega was right. Her brother would approve of anything when it came to survival. After all, it was Ethan Fallon that taught her to steal in the first place. She could almost feel the chill on the air during that autumn evening that she and her brother sat by the side of some godforsaken road waiting for a ride. She was 14, Ethan was 17. It had been a week since either of them had a decent meal. Their faces were caked in dirt. Their clothes were rags. They could both look down and count the ribs showing through their skin. And Ethan spent the last of their money on makeup. Do this, said Ethan, puckering his lips. You look like a bloody monkey when you do that, said Althea. Just do it, Ethan repeated, pulling a tube of bright red lipstick from his pocket. Althea did as she was told, and Ethan leaned forward to apply the lipstick. Don't worry about looking too good. These geezers aren't into good. They want desperate. That's what they prey on. They fee on desperation. So you don't want to look too good, but you want to look as if you tried to look good. Now do this. Ethan smacked his lips together like a carp pulled out of water. Althea did, although she had the distinct feeling that her brother's makeup skills would be better suited for the circus than her present purposes. Ethan put the lipstick away and retrieved a small tube of eyeshadow from the other pocket of his worn green jacket. If you get two male dogs in a room, Ethan continued, applying the eyeshadow, sometimes a bigger one will mount the smaller one and start humping. I mean, really go at it. That's what this is. It's not a sexual thing. Not really. It's about dominance. Not love. It's ownership. That's what the geezers want. One more bloody thing to own. Ethan sat back. Just to be clear, he added, you don't actually need to sleep with the bastard. That was less of a relief than it sounded at the time, which was kind of a feat. Ethan put the eyeshadow back in his pocket and pulled out a clear plastic tube with some kind of white powder inside. When you get into his house, offer to pour him a drink. They like that sort of thing. Shows that you know your place. And that place is somewhere between his pet and the person who makes his food. When you pour his drink, grab the top of this and drop the lot in. Althea took the tube and held it up to the light. There were maybe a few grams of colorless crystal that looked like table salt. It'll dissolve instantly. He won't even get halfway through the drink before he feels the effects. Once that happens, he'll be on the floor in seconds. Althea took the tube. What if he doesn't want to drink? Or wants to, you know, before? We'll deal with that if it happens. Put on a bit of charm. Or ask for a drink for yourself and tell him you can't go through with it without a nip. Then offer him one so as you're not drinking alone. That's a good one. It feeds the desperation. If it was desperation they wanted, Althea had it. She had it all. The dress she wore was something her brother dug out of a trash heap. It might have been pretty once, or expensive at the very least. It was from a material that changed colors depending on the angle one looked at it, and it used to be decked out in crystal sequins from top to bottom. Most of those were gone now, though a few still hung on. Without them, though, it looked like she was wearing an oil spill. It also had no pockets. Althea shoved the small tube into the top of her dress. Just then they heard the distant whine of an electric motor making its way up to the road. Althea swallowed hard and stood up. Ethan followed. Nobody in their village could afford the few remaining motor vehicles. That privilege was reserved for a select class, a class that could afford to maintain a lifestyle comparable to those that lived before the fall. They fixed up old wrecks with imported parts, every one of which could feed Althea's village for a month. We'll be nearby, said Ethan, patting her on the shoulder as they watched the clouds of dust. 
Me and the other lads, we won't let you out of our sight. That was strangely reassuring, although Althea knew it was an outright lie. They didn't have the means to keep up with an old-fashioned motor vehicle. They would be able to track it, but only because nobody used them anymore. Tire tracks stood out these days. You'll be a herd, Althea. You pull this off, the whole village eats for a week. The vehicle got closer. Althea's anxiety increased with a crack of gravel and dirt under the tires, and she had to clench her fist to keep them from shaking. This whole thing wasn't just an idea cooked up by the young people of the village anymore. It was real. Althea was really out shivering in the autumn evening, painted like a whore, and in a dress that made her look like another bit of garbage this society threw away. The thought made her stomach turn, and, for a moment, she felt like she might be sick right on the road. Are you sure this is... I mean, this is okay, right? I'm not doing anything wrong, right? She asked without looking her brother in the eye. Ethan smiled. Ethan had a smile so warm it made a fire seem like a needless redundancy. Ethan had a smile you could curl up next to. It's survival. You're only doing what you need to survive. I have to go now, but I won't be far, okay? The vehicle was close. They could see it cresting the hill on the horizon. I love you, Althea, said Ethan. I won't let anything happen to you. With that, Ethan was gone. Althea didn't look at him or watch him leave. She focused on the black, sporty car closing in. It kicked up clouds of dust from the remains of the street so that it looked like a missile flying down the road at her. She had seen similar ones before. They came by fairly regularly, took what they wanted, and left. Tonight, it was coming for her. The car pulled up beside her and stopped. The window came down and revealed a fat man dressed in a suit that could never have been bought anywhere in Britannia. He had a mustache that suggested that somewhere, a walrus was missing its whiskers. Why, hello there, young lady. What is a pretty little thing like you doing out in this cold? Althea swallowed hard and forced a smile. She tried to form that same little smile that Ethan had, the kind of smile you could curl up next to. Just waiting, she said, wrapping her arms around her small frame, waiting for a gentleman like yourself to pass by. Is that right? said the man. And what would you be waiting for, exactly? Just a touch of kindness. It's in short supply these days. I'd give anything I had to find a bit. She ran her hand up to her chest and felt the vial of white powder. Anything, huh? said the man, watching her hand. Anything at all. Of course, he opened the passenger door. And from that moment, she played her part. She giggled and fawned on his every word. She moaned when he ran his hand over her thigh. And yes, she made him a drink. Althea and her brother cleaned out several houses that way over the next few years. Enough to feed her village. Enough for her and Ethan to have a proper home. Enough for her to leave that trash heap village and go to medical school. She wiped away some tears as she rolled on her side on that lumpy hard mattress in a palace on Venus. Vega was right. Ethan would have approved of this. The kids fighting to prove themselves able-bodied warriors would have made sense to him, as would the subjugation of those who were deemed unworthy. After all, he was willing to leave his little sister standing in a skimpy, torn dress, shivering in the cold, waiting to be picked up by some unspeakable predator, like a hunk of bait on a rope. Well, Althea wouldn't. Not anymore. If she could go back in time, she would have rescued that little girl. She would have shown her that there were other options. Maybe Ethan wasn't smart enough or driven enough to find them, but they were surely there. Prostituting his own little sister couldn't have been the only thing left open to him, and, if Althea could go there now, she would show him that. That thought calmed her and filled her with a sense of peace as she drifted off to sleep. She couldn't do anything for that little girl anymore, but she could do something here. She just had to find out what it was. 
Isra was in an identical adjacent room, blissfully sleeping off the honey wine from the night before. It was a deep, dreamless slumber that wasn't even interrupted by a man quietly getting out of bed, putting clothes on, and slipping out the door. She barely broke her rhythmic snoring when the man came back into the room with a metal serving tray and a kettle. It was a kind of sleep that was impenetrable right up until it wasn't. There was a sharp sound of metal sliding on metal as the man drew back the curtain. The grating sound, combined with the intense light, dragged her kicking and screaming into consciousness. Isra was awake, and in pain, and... naked, it turned out, and there was someone else in the room. She sat bolt upright in a moment of panic. Then, in a secondary moment of panic, she tugged the covers over her body. It took her a moment to remember the man standing by the window. He had dark hair and a belted tunic over a well-muscled body. Boom die, he said, smiling. There was far too much enthusiasm in his voice, especially as the details of the impending hangover began to set in, and the memories from last night started to take form. There was the party in the Salah. The Ardain Ha asked her to pick a man. She did, and then, well, she made a good choice. But while she was enjoying herself, apparently her hangover had been preparing a full assault. She covered her eyes and groaned into her hands. The man walked across the room to the bedside table, where he sat the serving platter with the kettle. He picked it up, speaking in Cytherian. I brought you Feroncha. You brought what? She asked in the same language. Isra kept her eyes covered. It helped keep the pain just below excruciating. There was a slosh of liquid, accompanied by a sharp herbal scent, like mint mixed with pine and... She'd have to say cat urine. The man held a cup of it out for her, which only made the unpleasant smell more intense. Feroncha! The man repeated. It brings alertness, strength, and virility. Try it. Isra squinted at the steaming cup of bluish-green liquid the man held out for her. Now that it was right under her nose, the feline quality of the drink seemed more potent. Still, she took the cup, sipped the hot drink, and immediately launched into a mild coughing fit. She liked her tea strong, but this made her strongest cup seem like she waved a tea bag over a hot cup of water. To call it bitter would be like biting into a ghost pepper and saying that it was a little spicy. Still, it helped ease her headache, and she already felt a little more awake. She took another drink. Arenha Isabel wanted me to give you a message. The man pulled a red cloak over his tunic. She requests that you meet her on the overlook. There are servants outside who will take you there when you are ready. Excellent. Isra tried to keep the sarcasm out of her voice. She held the cup tight in her hands and took another sip. The hangover subsided, but fear, shame, and general self-loathing rushed in to take its place. How could she have been so dumb, so careless? Getting drunk was bad enough. It was perhaps a minor lapse of judgment under the circumstances. But going to bed with one of the native people? A rush of anxiety turned her stomach as she realized she was on a planet full of overly aggressive men, armed and begging for a fight. The Arain Ha notwithstanding, women tended to fall into a broad category labeled property in such societies. Best case scenario, she could escape an interplanetary incident without ending up married to someone. That is, if she wasn't already. The man finished getting dressed and bowed to Isra. Thank you very much for last night, he said. There was much pleasure. Isra forced a smile. Yes, there was. There really was. That part was absolutely true. He walked to the door and flashed a charming boyish smile. I hope to see you again. Enjoy your time with us. And that was it. The soldier bowed one more time, turned, and walked out the door. Well, that was easy. Isra sat back on the pillows and sipped the ferrocha, 
A strange feeling of calm washed over her. It was nice. Stupid, dangerous, entirely outside the mission protocol for the Human Reconnection Project, and grounds for dismissal as the project leader, she quickly chastised herself. But nice. She finished the drink and went to the bedside table to pour another cup. She found that the aroma was still awful, but the taste wasn't so bad when she got used to it. The evening wasn't completely her fault, though. Hell, it was all practically at the Arain Ha's request. One might even say it was diplomatic. There was probably some clause in the mission charter that covered it. If not, it would be an excellent time to add one. She sat back down with her cup and, because nobody was around, she let herself smile. Why should she feel bad? It was fun, and she deserved to have fun once in a while. But now it was time to get to work. She remembered Althea's unease during the feast, and she was right. There was something about this place that was just, well, wrong. Isra couldn't pick out why yet, but it was there. It was in the perfect faces and the bodies of its citizens. It was in the expression of the children sent out to fight for the pleasure of the crowds yesterday. There was something at work in this city, and as much as she would like to find out what it was, it was better to do the job and get out as fast as possible. She finished her second cup of Ferroncha, got dressed, and left the room. As promised, two servants of Arain Ha waited outside the door. They escorted her through the halls of the Salah, and up a set of stairs onto a wide balcony overlooking the white stone buildings that filled the spaces in between the craggy mountains of the Venetian landscape. Isra walked to where the Arain Ha sat in a simple chair built out of several planks of wood painted white. She sipped from a mug as she overlooked the city below. You wish to see me, Arain Ha? Isra asked as she approached. Isabel didn't turn around, but motioned to an identical chair next to her. I did. Would you join me? Isra sat down, and the Arinha motioned to a kettle and several cups on the metal tray. Fornocha. Yes, thank you. Isra poured herself a cup. She wasn't sure that she actually wanted any more of the intensely bitter tea, but she felt it best to take what was offered her. They sat in silence and watched the city below them. Cytheria appeared to be an equal mix of metropolis and military base. Groups of men and women marched or ran in formation through the streets while a colto moved around them. There were no pack animals that she could see. A colto carried goods in small handcarts, baskets, or slung over their shoulders. There was a persistent quality to the movement. Nobody seemed to be in a terrible hurry, yet it didn't look like anything short of a natural disaster would hold things up either. It was as if every man and woman on the streets were part of some great machine, built with extraordinary precision by an extremely skilled craftsman. Was everything to your liking last night? The Arain Ha spoke in English. Yes, said Isra. It was most enjoyable. That pleases me. Cytherian men take much care to bring pleasure to the women. Their strength combines with the woman's will. That is the power of Cytheria. I wanted for you to see that. Isra took a long drink, unsure of how to respond. Everything about the Arenha's speech and actions appeared to be from a mind that was working on a set plan. Like the city itself, there was a mechanical precision to the Arenha that made Isra uneasy. I would like to begin discussing the arrangement between our two worlds, said Isra, thinking it best to continue in the Arenha's native language. Through trade and exchange of ideas, our two societies, in time... The Arenha interrupted. Yesterday, I showed you the seeds of our military might. Today, I would like to show you the mighty tree that it becomes. Of course. Isra set her cup down, pulling up her sleeve to reveal her Eros computer. Give me a moment to locate the others. Once again, the Arenha interrupted. 
Your people have been taken care of. Your soldier will meet with Gabriel and join his men on patrol. The smaller one, I am told, is still exploring the secrets of the ancient ship with Joanna. I have sent for the other woman. She will arrive soon, and Celia will escort you. Isra looked back out at the city. A group of occulto carrying sacks of grain paused and spread to the edge of the street to allow a formation of soldiers pass. When they did, the workers closed ranks again and resumed their journey as if nothing happened. Speaking of the other woman, Isabel added, Althea, I think her name was. Yes, she is our... Isra paused and realized she didn't know if there was a Cytherian word for medical officer. She compromised and went with healing person. The Arenha nodded as if she understood. I understand that she left the Salah last evening. A few of my people saw her leave. Where did she go? asked Isra. She was careful to keep any emotion out of her voice, although she could almost feel the Arenha's words reaching for something. It tugged at her in the same way a long and expected silence compelled its target to fill it. She went to find your soldier, who is being entertained at House Vincente. I see. Is that a problem? For the first time since Isra sat down, Isabel turned her head to look her directly in the eye. I have taken steps to make sure my people will take care of yours. I wish for that to remain. Cytheria has its dangers. Isra looked out over the city again. I do not understand. Are we prisoners here? I would not call it so. Instead, let us say that it is my wish. Celia will arrive soon. The Arenha indicated that the conversation was over by getting up without a word and rushing past Althea, who had just arrived on the overlook. Althea watched her go before she looked at Isra with surprise. Is something wrong? I do not know. Althea, did you see anything last night? Anything unusual? Althea sat down in the Arenha's vacant seat. Why, yes, actually. There was a woman. She was pregnant and terrified. I couldn't pick up much of what she said except for, help me, they're going to take my baby. I see. What do you think it means? Isra sipped her mug of Fernocha. I am afraid this visit has nothing to do with an alliance. The Arenha has something else in mind when she invited us here. Shouting from the street caused Isra to stand up and observe. She didn't know what instigated it, but a Cytherian citizen and an occulto were arguing about something. The argument reached a crescendo, and the robed man charged the citizen. The fight lasted only a couple of punches before the occulto lay on the ground. Fights like this were not uncommon in any city. Even the halls of the ministry had their odd scuffle now and again. It was practically human nature. Still, it seemed an unbearable anomaly in a place like this. You have been listening to The Ruins of Empire, Templum Veneris, the second book of The Ruins of Empire Project. The Ruins of Empire podcast was written by Jeremy L. Jones and produced by Sean Vincent. Cover art was by Nick Martin. Music was Predator by Purple Planet at purpleplanet.com. Licensed under Creative Commons 3.0 license. City of Geeks, independent new media, produced in Idaho.